Now that John just preached the whole sermon for me and did my intro for me, <laughs> I, was, I, w- I told myself I wasn't going to sing, but then I, I can't help myself, and now I'm a little bit hoarse in the throat. But, uh, oh, man, I love singing with you guys. Um, so my son is uh, Tice. He's two and a half, um, and my mother-in-law is here to, to see me preach this morning, so I'm excited about that. Um, but my son is two and a half, uh, and he's just at that age where he's starting to talk. He's starting to, we, I can have a conversation with him, and it's a little bit disjointed, but um, it's so much fun. And it's, it's, sometimes it's confusing, and I don't understand what he's talking about, and it's like, yeah, sure, okay, whatever, just go play. Um, but it's been a little bit of an experiment for my wife and I, and we laugh about this all the time, because we are attempting to teach him three languages. Uh, my wife is Dutch, and so she's speaking Dutch to him. I'm speaking French to him. We lived in France for 10 years, and then English, English is the majority language, and so he's learning that as he goes, and and he's, we're kind of really excited right now because we didn't know how it was going to turn out, but he is right now able to communicate with all of our friends and family in their maternal, in their, their native language. Um, and that's super exciting for us. And it's, you know, my mom was here a couple weeks ago, and she, uh, we were sitting at the, the dinner table and eating, and he, without missing a beat, would turn and speak to my wife in Dutch, to my mom in English, to me in French. And I'm, I'm going, how does a two-and-a-half-year-old do this? So, it's so instinctive to him. And that's what I want to talk about today. Sometimes I wish my prayer life would be a little more instinctive. Sometimes I wish that I would turn to God and just naturally start talking to him, but we don't. Um, And as we get into this idea, I want to acknowledge two things. The first thing is that prayer is hard, right? If I were to take a straw poll and say, raise your hand, don't raise your hand. But if I were, and say, whose prayer life is phenomenal, fantastic right now? Probably, what, one or two of us would raise our hands? I wouldn't raise my hand. Because we, we know that our, our prayer life should be better. We know that we should talk to God more. Um, and the second thing that I want to acknowledge is just that, is just that often our, our, our view of prayer is wrong. Often we think of prayer. When you talk to me about prayer, I'm imagining a group of people in the back corner of the Menham Hills basement. It doesn't have a basement, but if we did, it would be down there in the, in the dead of winter. Just interminably boring. But that's not, that's not prayer. Prayer is talking to God. But so often when you say, Tim, think about prayer, I'm going, boring. And what, I'm really mean, what I really mean is that I don't see that prayer is adding value to my life. We don't see that prayer adds value to our life. And so we go, oh, it's a waste of time. But prayer isn't a waste of time. And so this morning as we look at Luke chapter 11, as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, we're going to look at a couple of reasons why it's not. We're going to get a second opinion on prayer. Why it's actually a very good use of your time. So here's what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 11. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And the friend will answer from inside his house and say, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't give you up and give to give you anything. I tell you, says Jesus, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. 
and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Because what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke is fascinating in how he he arranges the stories in his book because he, sometimes he arranges them slightly out of chronological order to pull out specific themes and ideas. And so in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, he has this, this great verse where he says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And it's this idea that Jesus is going, okay, I'm going to head back to Jerusalem and I know that I'm going to be arrested and tortured and crucified there by the officials there. And so from that, that time in, in, in Luke's book, in Luke, he, Jesus is laser-focused on preparing his disciples for life without him. And so now here in Luke 11, Jesus is praying. Once again, we find him praying. And he comes back, and the disciples go, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like, like you pray, like that. Because they've seen him pray. They've seen this pattern in his life of of, he, of, of, of constantly praying, how it undergirds his entire ministry, of, of how he always prays right before something really important or miraculous happens. And they're going, maybe this isn't a waste of time. Maybe this isn't just for show. Maybe it's not just a ritual. Maybe there's actually power in it. Maybe there's something to this. And so they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And it sounded actually familiar to them, like it sounds familiar to us, because they'd already heard it. They'd heard it back in the Sermon in the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew 6. And so the first thing that I want to pull out from this that's, that's important for us, that's important for the, the, the disciples, is that prayer isn't a waste of time because it's vital. It's vital. And we know that's true because prayer was vital for Jesus. He was constantly doing it. He was doing it in a way that it was clear that it was important to his ministry. I can remember growing up and my parents um, were very strict with us, my sister and I, at, at table. Some of it was my English heritage and they wanted to teach us manners and some of it was just it was a good tool for training us as kids. But they were always, they had a certain set of expectations for what we were supposed to do at, at the table. Um, but I can also remember my mom always getting after my dad because he wouldn't respect those guidelines. And I laugh about that, but now I'm starting to find that I'm actually the guilty party. That for where our kids are at, at two and a half, we have certain things we're trying to teach them at table, and I keep doing the things that we said we're not going to do, like making car noises and whatever else, <laughs> right? Do what I say, not what I do. Jesus doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have that problem. He is pre- he, preaching what he practices is such a part of him. It's, 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 it's his nature to be like that. He doesn't have that problem that we have, that we say one thing and do another, let me just show you for a second, I'm going I'm to geek out on you a little bit, and just show you wh- why that's such a part of his nature. In John, if we jump forward to the Gospel of John, John 1, verse 1, he writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word. But then he continues, he says, All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. So everything that has ever existed, everything that will ever exist, was made by Jesus. The Word in action. If we go back to Genesis 1, we see that again. God says, let there be light, let there be land, let there be water, and then it was. The author of Genesis isn't saying, hey, here's what God did. He announced that he was going to do it, and then he went and did it. No, his very, his very words engendered action. 
There's no distinction between, for God between what he says and what he does, what he knows and what he does. And so what would that look like for us if we were a little bit more like Jesus? If we were a little more congruent in our, our knowing or our, our saying and our doing? What would that look like? What would it look like if what we say we believe in our theology, in, in our evangelism, that God wants a relationship with us, what would it look like if that's what we actually did, if that's how we actually lived? And as I watch Jesus in this passage, I'm shuffling back and forth. As I watch Jesus in this passage, I notice that he's praying. He teaches the disciples to pray and he prays himself. And I think for us, the place to start is to pray. Prayer is the place where our, our knowing or what we say we know and what we do gets worked out. Why is that true? Do, let's do a little thought experiment for a second. Imagine that God exists. Just imagine. Imagine that he exists. Imagine that he is personal and that he wants a relationship with you. So what's, what's the most logical thing to do based on those two criteria, that knowledge? Would it be to give him lots of gifts? Would it be to find out what his values are and then try and live your life according to those values? Would it be to accomplish lots of things for him? Well, maybe. Those are all good things. But based on the fact that he's personal and that he wants a relationship with you, I think that the, the most logical first step is to start talking to him and expecting him to talk back. You don't talk at God, you talk with him. Just like you don't talk at your best friend. And that's because that's all prayer is at the end of the day in a very simple way, prayer is just talking with God. It's talking to him like you would talk to a close friend. As an aside, just, uh, I was thinking about this. If prayer is talking with God, you should expect there to be some similarity between how you talk to your best friend and how you talk to God. The, the patterns, the rhythms, the frequency... There should be some similarity to that because he's a person and you talk to him like he's a person. Which means on some level that prayer will look a little different for each one of us. But there's more. Imagine that you start talking to God. Imagine that you start coming to him with all of those things, talking to him like you, you talk to your best friend, sharing all those things that frustrate you and you don't understand. And as you talk to him, this crazy thing happens. All of a sudden in your life, you notice that you actually start caring and doing and acting the way you say you want to care and act and think in your prayer. And so just like Jesus, prayer helps you to work out your praying and your doing. Just like, I don't know if you know the ad, just like Walgreens is at the corner of happy and healthy, prayer is at the corner of knowing and doing. read uh, something this week that took me kind of the heart of why this, this knowing and doing and working that out and prayer, how it all ties up together, why it's so important, why it's so vital for us. Uh, back in the Middle Ages, there was a guy called Frederick II. He, uh, in about 1220, he was crowned uh, Holy Roman Emperor. He was passionate about the arts and the sciences. And he did an experiment. He wanted to find out what is, what are, what is our natural language. 
Um, and so to do that, he took babies away from their birth mothers, and he gave them to the wet nurses, and he gave them two rules. He said, if you can't, as, a, as the, the wet nurse, sorry, as the wet nurse, you can't uh, talk to the baby. You can't talk in, when you're around them, and you can't give them any nonverbal communication. You can't pat them. You can't rub their backs. You can't, there's no, no communication, because I want to see if, they're, if they develop a language by themselves in a vacuum, in a sense. The historian uh, Salim Bene says that he never, he labored in vain. He never got any results from it because all of the infants died. They all died because they couldn't survive without communication. The, month, the, the, the wet nurses were allowed to bathe them and nurse them. They weren't allowed to do any communication of any kind and they all died. I mean, I have a six-month daughter, six-month-year-old daughter. If my wife and I refuse all communication with her, she's going to die. Even just basic patting on the back. And we know that's true. You and I, we know that's true that children need to be communicated to by their parents and yet we constantly refuse to communicate with our Father in Heaven. And it's killing our souls. It's, it's, your soul is slowly shrinking and shriveling inside you. My personal experience, um, I was convicted about this uh, a couple months ago. I read a book on prayer um, and one of my biggest excuses for not praying, in fact, for not doing a lot of things, is that I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I'm, I have too much to do. I hear that. I say it all the time. I hear you guys say it all the time. Um, and we are. We're so busy. Um, and this quote that I read from uh, author Don Carson says this. He says, It matters little whether you are the mother of active children who drain away your energy, an important executive in a major multinational corporation, a graduate student cramming for impending comprehensives, a plumber working overtime to put your children through college, or a pastor of a large church putting in 90-hour weeks. At the end of the day, if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. And that answered a question a bit in my mind of how do I actually, we always say, I'm always saying I'm too busy. How do I actually know? If I'm too busy to pray, I'm too busy. I have to cut something. I've got to make time for that life-giving activity of talking to my father. The next thing that Jesus teaches us through this, this passage in Luke is that prayer isn't a waste of time because it's intimate. And to explain what that looks like, Jesus paints a picture to his disciples. He tells them a parable, it's a story with a lesson, of what it looks like. He gives it color and shape and detail. What does it look like? It, that intimate relationship looks exactly like a child, a father-child relationship. And this is the huge revelation of the New Testament, that God has revealed himself and he's like a father. Here's what 1 John 3, 1 says God is like. He says, see what great love the father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He's lavished his love. He's given graciously and generously and freely to us by making us part of his family. And that means that we can have a relationship with him. You know, just think, think about the people you're closest to for a second. Think about that for two seconds. That person that comes to mind. Is that relationship a waste of time, that most intimate relationship? Prayer isn't a waste of time because it's intimate. And this idea of intimacy revolves around two things, dependence and confidence. Reality with God looks like child dependence on their father. This model for prayer that Jesus gives us, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's the Matthew version. But 
This is the idea of all-encompassing dependency on Christ. Every one of those requests, I'm not going to go into them, that's a whole other sermon, but every one of those requests is an area of your life. There's no compartmentalization in your relationship with God. There's no saying, oh, here's what I'm going to depend on God for, and, and here's what I can do myself. No, praying this prayer, this model for prayer, is saying, when you pray, you're saying, God, I know that in every area of my life, if you're not in it, it's going to go pear-shaped. It's going to go, it's going to go wrong. So Jesus tells a story of what it looks like. He starts with this parable about what God is not like. He actually tells two parables. One, the first about what God is not like, and the second about what he is like. So Jesus says that there's this guy comes to your house in the middle of the night, knocks on your door and says, hey, I'm here. And you go, uh-oh, I don't have anything to give this guy to eat. But in that culture, you have to know that to turn that guy away, to not feed him would have been unthinkable. You would, culturally unacceptable. So he goes, what am I going to do? Well, i got to go to my friend's house, and I'm going to ask him. So he knocks on his friend's house, his neighbor, and he says, hey, i got this guy who just showed up at my house. i got to give him some food. i got to feed him. And the neighbor's already in bed. Now, if you know anything about Palestinian homes, everybody sleeps in the same room. It would have been the guy and his wife and his eight kids. So he's going, look, don't wake me up. If I get up, I'm going to wake everybody else up. I'm already in bed. Leave me alone. But Jesus says, even though he won't get up on the basis of friendship, he will get up on the basis of what he says, this impudence, this shameless confidence. He's going to get up and help his friend reluctantly because he's afraid that if he doesn't, word's going to get out and then he won't, he'll be embarrassed, he'll be shamed in society. And so even though he won't do it because of their friendship, he will reluctantly get up because of social pressure and help his friend. And Jesus says that's what God is not like. God is not a reluctant friend. God wants you to keep coming back to him and asking over and over and over and over and over again like a two-and-a-half-year-old who keeps asking you the same thing over and over and over and over and over. That childish confidence that has no boundaries. You don't have boundaries with God. And he's not going to get angry. He's not going to lose his patience. He wants you to keep coming back to him with that confidence. So that's what he's not like. And then he tells a follow-up and he says, here's what God is like. And so he tells a story, and I love this story. He's, he says, who of you, as in, none of you is crazy enough to do this. None of you would actually do this. But who of you, if your son asks you for a fish, is going to give him a serpent? Or who of you, if your son asks you for an egg, is going to give him a scorpion? If then you, in your... <coughs> If, if, because you are evil in your sin, in your imperfection, if you're able to enact basic kindnesses towards your children, how much more is God, who is perfect, the perfect Father, going to give you the things you ask for, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Can you, my son, it, I love talking about my son. I swore I would never be like the guy who, like, is just, like, my wife told me I'm like that. I guess I just have to make the most of it. Every morning he wakes up, and he asks for porridge. He loves porridge. Do you guys know what porridge is? Yeah. John said that Americans don't know what porridge is. Goldilocks. Oh, Goldilocks. Goldilocks ate porridge. There you go. He loves porridge. He wakes up, sits up in bed, and goes, porridge? <laughs> so I take him out to the, I take him out to the, to, to, to the, the kitchen, and, and I make the porridge for him, sit him in his chair, and he goes, blueberries? 
So I get some blueberries out and put them in there and stir it up. And he goes, honey? So I put some honey and stir it up and he gobbles it all down every morning. Every morning. He loves that stuff. Can you imagine? It's almost nonsensical. Can you imagine the twisted logic to go, my son is asking for porridge, therefore I'm going to give him a scorpion. How do you even get there? And so if we're able to do those, those basic things of, my son is asking me for porridge, so I'm going to give him some porridge because he needs to eat. If we are capable of doing that in our imperfection as parents, as fathers, how much more is God going to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Shouldn't that change, right? If God is a father, if he is a good father, shouldn't that change how we approach him? Shouldn't that change how often we approach him? Prayer is not a waste of time because it's vital, because it's intimate. It's asking your Father, who loves you, to, to move on your behalf. It's spending time with your dad, with that, that close friend, that father. And finally, it's, it's not a waste of time because it's hard. Let that sink in for a minute. I've been learning in the last couple of years that the things that are most valuable to me are actually the things that are hard. It's where I learn the most. Prayer is not a waste of time because it's hard. Jesus tells his disciples, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Those, those verbs, ask, seek, knock, knock, those are continuous verbs. It's actually asking, seeking, knocking. It's that continue, that persevering in prayer, that keep coming back. It's that, that child is tied into that idea of dependence that our, ch- our children have, that we keep asking and keep asking and keep asking until he answers or until we feel like we're not supposed to pray anymore. There's a really great picture of the hardness of prayer in Genesis 32. And it says, uh, it's the story of Jacob when he wrestles with the angel. I'm going to read it to you. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, that's Jacob, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and sent them across to the other side of the river. He took them and sent them all across. Everything else he had, everything he had was over on the other side, and he was alone on the other side of the river by himself. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of point, out of joint, as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. That's the picture of wrestling with God in prayer. Lord, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you, I'm going to keep wrestling with you in this. I can remember being 15 or 16, and I would play badminton with one of my best friends. Not the most manly sport, I know. (laughs) But we would go at it for hours. I mean, summer nights, we would go back and forth. It would be his game point, and then my game point, and then his game point. And we were evenly matched. And so it went on and on and on. That's the picture here. They were evenly matched. But most of us, and again, I'm including myself here, we don't want the relationship because relationship is hard. We don't approach God with everything that's in our hearts and our minds because we don't want to have to wrestle with questions like, God, why aren't you doing what I asked you to do? You know, we really want him to act more like a background app that's on our phones that we don't ever have to think about. 
or like a, some kind of distant deity that, that you can't really know. We don't want a life of daily maintenance. Now, all that being said, I'm always playing devil's advocate in my head as I'm thinking through these things. Okay, Jesus said, ask and you will find, or you will receive, seek and you will find. But what happens when I don't, when I'm not given? What happens when I don't find? What happens when the door isn't opened? That sounds great. And so as I was working through that, I found this phenomenal verse in 1 John 5.14. And it has this promise. And it says, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The Apostle John would argue that if we ask according to God's will, he will, he will answer our requests. Because, right, if God's will is completely perfect and good and loving, it would make sense that if we're asking in line with that, then he'll actually answer. To put it another way, God's ultimate will for you and I is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the language of Romans. We would be conformed to his image. That when people look at us, we look so much like Jesus that they see him instead of us. So as your prayer begins to flow from that place... He's going to, you will have your requests, is what John would say. Now, I go, okay, that's the first part of the answer, but that's still, I'm on, now if you're like me, you're picking out all of the, uh, the exceptions. Okay, that's, it's kind of satisfactory, but then there's a second part. So what about the second part? What about, what about that bomb that went off in Manchester? What about those two and three-year-old, or however, the, the little kids who were killed? What about, what about the kids who are born alcoholic on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and then try and, and at 15 or 16 try and commit suicide? What about them? God, why aren't you doing anything about them? How could, there, how, how, how could, a, perfect, right? how could a perfect and loving God allow those things to happen? And honestly, I'm not sure I have a completely thought out answer for you there. I mean, they're out there. You can go Google them. Lots of very smart, intelligent people have put out those answers. And for me, whenever I read those, they always run up against a problem, a great unknown, that we don't know the mind of God. And here's where we come full circle. Here's my, here's my answer from a different perspective for you. Is that maybe this is what relationship looks like. And we're coming back full circle. Maybe God wants you to keep talking to him about those things that you don't understand. Right? That's relationship. And as you talk to him, and as you say, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? I care about this. Guess what? He starts working in your life, and all of a sudden you start really caring about it, and then you go out to Pine Ridge because you said you cared about it to God, and he changed your heart, and then you really started caring about it. And I think in the, in the context of this passage of prayer, that is, to me, that's the answer that I go, yeah. Okay, it's relationship. Relationship's hard. I got to keep going back to God with those questions because we can't ultimately know them. I've read all the answers. Maybe you have too. Just as a, a last aside before I close, Luke says, Jesus says through Luke, that the best gift he could give us is the Holy Spirit. Which is hard for me because sometimes I end up praying for, well, God, I'd like a promotion. 
or a new car, or, you know, we pray for those things. Sometimes we even pray a little more spiritually. We say, God, I just want you to, I just want you to fix my marriage. I just want you to bring my kids back. But Jesus says, the best gift he could give you is the Holy Spirit. And so my challenge in some ways is, is, how many of us are actually spending time in prayer asking God, saying, Lord, I need your spirit to be able to live through this situation? How many of us are praying for his spirit to empower us to live out our lives like Jesus? So as the band comes up, I'm not back there to get them, so. (laughs) As the band comes up, um, I don't want to minimize the hardness of prayer. It's real. There's tension there. There's mystery. There's unknowns. It's hard. Um, it's hard for me. I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've stopped and started and stopped again. I got to church and heard somebody preach about prayer or read a book about prayer and it was inspiring and then I start praying and then it's boring and I, I'm like, so I stop again. I, I guess my challenge and my encouragement to you is this. My hope is that when you hear that voice in your head that says prayer is a waste of time, you'll be encouraged to persevere in it because you know its benefits. You'll know its vitality and its intimacy and its hardness. Maybe for those of you who are going, I've never prayed a day in my life, that maybe you would sit down and have that first conversation with God today. That you who are like me, who who struggle in it and stop and start all the time, that you'll be encouraged to pray through it. I think that that emptiness that you feel, that hunger that you start to feel is, is a first step. It's an important first step, but you have to push through it. We need to encourage each other to push through it. Right? That's why we gather, to encourage each other. Finally, those of you, I know that there are those of you who are faithful in prayer, and I want to say thank you. This church needs people like you. If you want a really simple application, I told this to my small group boys the other day, set your alarm two minutes early. And pray for two minutes. Two minutes. Start with something attainable, achievable. You know, if you're doing the reading through Luke with us, there's a prayer at the end. Use that as a jumping off point and, and pray for two minutes after that. Set your alarm. It's, it's vital to your soul. Your soul is dying if you are not communicating with your Heavenly Father. Prayer can change the world. I really, truly believe that. And if you dare to try it, it might change you. This week, how is your prayer life going to look different?